everybody to the pre-admission game. Um, Mitch and I are back. Uh, it is now summer of, of 2022. We've gone through our GAMSAT season and we're sort of in this in this gray area at the moment where we were sort of having a bit of fun with the topics and, and talking about all, all things that are weird and wonderful that everyone might find interesting. Um, you know, summer is upon us as we're recording this. Uh, Mitch and I are very, very sunburnt in the studio, but we're pushing through because you guys mean a lot to us and, you know, we got to get the podcast out there. Isn't that right, Mitch? That is right indeed. So today, what we're going to be talking about is kind of, I suppose, it. some people may think that this is something that's far off in the future. Um, it's about research and research during your medical school education. Um, and with that particular emphasis on the MD project, uh, case in point will be Melbourne University's MD project as an example. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason we're going to talk about it is because it plays a lot of what plays a pretty big role in people's decision-making process when they're thinking about which university they want to apply to. Often people will say, oh yeah, this place is very good for research. Um, So, you know, Aaron and I really wanted to go through what that actually means when we say a place is good for research and how that could, you know, um, you know, make you into the right kind of doctor for, for what you want to be when you grow up. Absolutely. It's, it's a very important, um, you know, concept to get your head around, um, especially when you have all of these universities and their marketing, marketing teams, not their marketing teams, maybe later their marketing teams, but initially their marketing teams pumping your head full of all of these ideas about, you know, we have this project, we have this title, we have all of these bells and whistles. Um, it's important to know what you're actually buying into. So I guess mm-hmm. without further ado, um, let's just talk about the different types of research available, because at this point, I think your research is so ubiquitous, you know, Mel, um, Mitch mentioned the Melbourne model, but yeah, pretty much every university does some sort of research. So I guess the traditional MD degree, or at least the way it works at, at the University of Melbourne, is you sort of, you, depending if you look at pre-pandemic, during pandemic, post-pandemic, but generally there's about uh, six months, six to eight months of supported, dedicated research time. So in, in the days of old, it used to be you take half of your final year off to do your project. Well, you're not really off you're, you're still doing full-time study except your research um, <laughs> some people are some people are some people are yeah. the people that are committed to their projects um during the pandemic they did this hybrid thing where you sort of uh, did lectures in parallel with your research and it was split up over third year i think they're reverting back to sort of um you know a more uh, an even older model now where, where the research is interspersed with the the years i, I think it, it's it's sort of very very fluid and then changing how did it work at notre dame Mitch? Uh, for us, we started thinking about our project in first year, and then you undertook it in over second and third year, and you presented it in fourth year, mm. which is a lot of time to be spending on an MD project. Um, but it was nice in the sense that it gave us time to get to grips with different elements uh, that make up a research project um, and slowly go through them over time to make them sort of digestible. <laughs> I suppose some research can be dry for some people. So mm-hmm. um, Notre Dame really made that, I suppose, um, digestible and, and and small spreading it out over the full four years. I think this is actually a super important point that, that you're making, Mitch, because um, when you cram uh, an MD project, and we'll talk about, you know, all the content of, of a project, a research project in a second, but when you cram it over a period of, you know, six to eight months, there's a very steep learning curve. And I find that now when I, you know, it took me a long time to get around the relevant stats, 
how you read a paper is a paper valid um and now when i sort of when i've done a couple of courses and you know mitch and i are sort of practicing medicine we're working and, and reading research in our own time and we need to brush up on concepts it's it's sort of i think it, it's quite it was quite challenging for me to go from zero to um you know self-proclaimed hero when, when it comes to understanding these things i feel like maybe if if some of this started in first year for me and it was interspersed it would have been much easier to get around in fourth year when you actually had to do a lot of the heavy lifting from a uni mm. but you know that mm. being said it's not terrible it's not impossible everybody does it it's just a matter of taste um so, so i talk- suppose mm, go oh on. yeah thank you pardon oh, okay so i was gonna say we've there are also um, undergraduate universities as well we're very postgraduate centric obviously um you know harking from gamsat and then and then interviews and things like that which are you know traditionally sort of more postgraduate approach um but undergrads also do an element of research and that would depend on which university you go to some of them do full year projects um others ones spend around six months as well so really um i think no matter where you go whether it be undergrad postgrad new university, old university, you are going to do some element of research um, at some point in your med degree. You can't get away from it. So I suppose, Aaron, um, now, if we if we were to talk about the various parts that make up an MD project, what would you say that involves? Yeah, absolutely. I think looking at the word research, it's a very daunting concept because, um, and certainly I, I think this still rings true for me, sometimes you don't really know where to start. Like, how do you even go about generating a new idea? I think the question of, of how you generate a new idea, it's not a trivial question. And it's something that we really don't have a, a fantastic answer to, you know, thousands of years into, into the human cultural experience. But the best thing we, we have is the sort of the, the evidence-based medicine model that we're going to discuss now. So coming back to the original question, what does it take to generate research? How does it work? Well, I guess the, the very beginning of research is you sort of have to figure out, uh, you have to get around, I guess, the statistics and the epidemiology. You've got to learn the language. Um, we're not talking anything particularly highbrow, you know, most of us in, in, in medicine aren't uh, particularly attuned to sort of the, the complex statistics. We leave that to the statisticians. Um, but you do have to have a degree of understanding as to what tests exist, what the utility is, um, you know, what they mean. Uh, because, you know, if you devolve everything into just, you know, P is less than 0.05, um, you're going to make a lot of rubbish because you won't really know what Tests I suppose, and and the the reason you need to be able to understand the language and understand where or what is being said in research is, then you can understand where the gaps are, where there's still gains to be made, where people are interested in, and where you should direct your your question. I suppose, uh, mm. which brings us to the next point: question generation. So, Aaron, what what does question generation mean in the context of research? You're really blitzing through this, Mitch. Maybe I had more things to say about statistics. Maybe I wanted to beat my hobby horse a bit more. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, question generation. Um, yeah, so so there's a lot of different performers. Um, I think the one that's commonly taught is Pico. We won't go into the details now. I don't think it's, it's particularly interesting for you guys. You'll be bored to death by it later by me. <laughs> <laughs> professional lecturers um but essentially after you looked at the stats and you identified you know maybe the study was underpowered maybe the study design was wrong um there i go talking about stats again but uh you, you will be able to formulate your question which is sort of which populations again are you going to look at which interventions are you interested in um you know broader questions about study design um and and that's sort of that's the question that you're setting out to answer based on 
on the things that you sort of encountered in the wild, wilder world. But the thing is that you can't jump from the question straight to the research. Um, once you've done your sort of preliminary scan and you've ideated and you've come up with this thing that you want to address, um, you want to do your very best to make sure that you're not adding to the, you know, the ever-growing mountain of garbage that is research. I don't. I say that in a very <laughs> endearing way. I just uh, the the rate of publication is growing exponentially, and inevitably, the, the reason why I say mountain of garbage is not because uh, most of the people publishing are much smarter than me. Um, it's because uh, you know, with that amount of of information, you achieve information mm -hmm. overload, and it's very hard to see, you know, if something has been published already or. You know, if, if it's applicable to the context that you, you're interested in applying. Anyway, it's very, very complicated. So once you've come up I with think, it... I think I, I sort of think about it like a DNA coil in that you've got you've got all this junk DNA and then every now and again you find these gems that are actually doing something. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, at, here we are poo-pooing um, plenty of like really good research there's, there's there's a lot there it's just um it's just hard to sometimes make a big splash so i suppose then moving moving the conversation from well i suppose you'd, you've you we've addressed you need to think about having knowing the language of research you need to be able to generate a question but where would you where do you go what type of research do you do how does one go about that kind of thing that's that's sort of another question i suppose people would be asking in the initial outsets of their research journey so how how would you go about that aaron well like we were saying we're talking about the mountain of, of evidence that exists you need to you sort of need to do a pre-publication or a pre-research before you actually research and the format that this takes is known as a literature review um and, and you know this is this is inevitably in your future. This has been inevitably in in our past and also in our future. Um, because you <laughs> can't get away from it. To do <laughs> what was that, Mitch? What was that? You can't get away from it. Can't get away from it. Um, effectively, what you have to do is synthesize. Uh, you know, God, I don't know how many papers, hundreds of papers, into this this uh, God this piece of research that effectively synthesizes everything that has been done on the the topic beforehand and the whole point of this review is i guess to prove that your question is valid and there is a gap in the literature and that you're not just um beating a dead horse that has been you know published and published and published previously mm. um, and i suppose you know why would you be mining through all of this literature in the first place hopefully it's because you have a genuine interest in that subject area and i suppose it's a good time to think about when you are, you know, following your nose, following your interests, maybe this is something that could lead into a future career for you. So um, research is a really good vehicle for really lifting your CV, um, which is why there is a lot of research in quotation marks out there that's, um, you know, good on paper, um, but doesn't really make a great deal of contribution to the overall subject matter. But um it, it is a way of demonstrating A, skills, and B, interest um, in an area, and I suppose C, uh, establishing contacts within the field that you want to enter. So it is a really good thing um, to, to get involved in research in some way. And then I suppose when you're thinking about your MD project, um, you can think about, well, where do I want to go with my career? Who do I want to be working with? Um, and you can make yourself known um, doing these research projects. Mitch, are you going to disclose what the topic of your research project was? No, I refuse. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to play the fifth. Play the fifth. Um, I did a very medically oriented research project. It looked at um, 
sort of uh, endocrinology and, and diabetes and uh, it was it was very very valuable um but yeah like mitch i will refuse to elaborate as to the sort of connections <laughs> that the, it, it spawned or did not spawn in my, my professional <laughs> life um yeah so so and you know i voluntarily chose this so that you'll have the option to sort of figure out which which project field you know you nobody's going to make you in charge of a project nobody's going to you know for you as as the head of the you know new cochlear implant bionic ear research team but you know within the field of say neurology or gastroenterology you can get a project of some relevance that lots of other people are also working on um, and i think it's also it's also good to be modest about it as well because you want to be able to finish what you started um or at least you know make a con- contribution from a point a to a point b over the given time that you've been allotted to do your project mm. you don't want it to be you know, something that expands a really long time, unless caveat, that is something that you've kind of planned from the outset. There are people that sort of do their MD projects with the view to go on to complete a master's later. Um, although they don't tell the university, that's probably not a good idea there because they, they like you to be doing only medicine at the same time. But some people um, on the download do um, research um, MPhils and also commence PhDs during medical school now because we are getting that competitive, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> for, and, and for it, specialist programs. Exactly. And and all of the longtime listeners uh, of this podcast will know that Mitch and I have prolifically, famously poo-pooed MD PhDs. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, to, to our, our great future dismay, I'm sure. <laughs> we will ruin the day when we said anything about any of those candidates, but um, and of course that that is certainly an option, and that is certainly an option that people undertake. Um, you know, if you if you're committed to a specialty from the outset, and you know that you know want to do trauma surgery or whatever it is that you want to do, and you know that your PhD, the PhD is in your future, um, there is don't giggle, Mitch. I was just thinking, like you know, someone someone who got hit by a car and realized that they wanted to do trauma surgery <laughs> and then decided to go into the field and do a, a, a big, you know, swathe of research. It's, it's, it's inspiring stuff. <laughs> I'm sure that's exactly where you laughed anyway. So um, essentially, you know, if you want to commit um, and, and do that PhD after MD, that is a possibility that many universities offer either out, outright at the beginning um, but you know you you shouldn't have to commit to that from the beginning. And the example of going out from the from the outset is A and U. They offer that That's combined right. MD PhD. That's right. But my understanding is that Monash allows you to convert or just smoothly transition into PhD after you've you've done your your MD. Um, I, I believe that's the case. But you know, we'll we'll have to we'll have to get admissions on the line to confirm that one. <laughs> so like <laughs> anecdotal anecdotal. Um, research from phrases anyway so after you've done your your um your review and there's lots of different flavors that the review could be you could have a very light review like just a subjective literature review where you sort of look at a couple of papers and synthesize or you can go hardcore systematic review which is like stats heavy you know brutal analysis where you pick apart all the papers and uh, it's it's very 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 complex um and and after you've completed that it's actually time to move on to the research in and of itself. Having said that, when I mentioned systematic reviews and meta-analyses, um, that that is research in and of itself, I guess, to a greater degree than just a normal literature review. Um, I think mm. with, with research, the more complex you get, the sort of the more publishable, esteemed, et cetera, it gets unless you- That's right. I suppose you could you could think of it as there is, there is research where you go and make the data yourself. Mm. Um, and then there is research where you mine the data that already exists. Mm. Now, one of which requires you to go and get ethics approval and then go and 
do the surveys or take the data or do the lab experiments or whatever. And the other one is where you just literally go to the big databases that already exist and take out the data, extract, and then analyze. So you can see from that which ones are going to be easier. I mean, depending on what kind of a person you are, but in terms of time intensiveness, it's a lot harder to go and create the data yourself than it is to go and reanalyze existing data. Hmm. That's right. That's right. But on the flip side of the coin, data analysis might be more tricky than collecting the data, right? So it's it's the the sort of the way the the weight of difficulty is distributed differently. Uh, but like mm. I said, it's it's sort of it's a more I guess streamlined process when the data already exists. So mm. you've done your your research question, you've done your review, and now you're moving on to your project. Now, before we started recording this episode, Mitch mentioned that there's a couple of different types of projects that exist after the the actual review, whatever it may be. Mitch, do you want to go through those? The things that exist after the review, after so as like in what, what, like what the outcomes. No, as in like yeah. what kind of research projects exist when you actually start doing novel research. So you have your your reviews, and then you, I guess you could go to a lab, or you want a lab. Yeah, I suppose so. You could do that. I, I mean, we we sort of touched on it before, but you can do primary, you know, basic research where you're in the lab doing pipetting and things like that. You can do clinical research where you're involved with clinical patients, uh, which is you know probably what the vast majority of doctors get involved with. Um, and then I suppose beyond that, there's more, I suppose you can break it into more qualitative styles of research as well. Um, there, there are lots of different types. Um, and I suppose you'd be guided by your interests and the things that you're wanting to do later on. Say if you wanted to do psychiatry, maybe qualitative, you know, survey-based things would be the best way to get you know, an understanding of a certain condition in psych versus someone who's interested in immunology, maybe better for you to go and do a wet lab project in basic science. Mm, mm, absolutely. Absolutely. And then I guess the last thing we wanted to talk about today was was the outcomes. Like, what are your KPIs? We got to get down to brass tacks here. Um, like, <laughs> what, what do you actually need to get out of your project? Because, you know, at the end of the day, everybody's going to do a research project. Um, certainly mm. everybody in the MD degree is going to come out with an MD project on the resume. What is going to sort of separate you out from everybody else and, and maximize the utility of such project? And that's no joke either, ladies and gentlemen, because you literally cannot pass your MD without doing your MD project. It is a, a full prerequisite. <laughs> yeah, as, as the title of the degree suggests. But <laughs> I guess, you know, I guess you've been paired up with the supervisor, you're, you're passing all of the, you know, university set criteria but what are the things that, that help your project stand out i guess the thing that comes to mind uh the, the most straightforward thing in, in my mind is uh you can present it you can well you can develop it into a poster and then you can present it the reason why i say this is straightforward is not because it's easy it's actually quite difficult but many universities provide opportunities for students to present their posters and you don't necessarily have to have your poster accepted at an international conference you can present it at say the UniMelb MD conference, which, you know, admittedly is not as prestigious as an external event, but it is still a poster and it is still a presentation. Um, so that's sort of entry level, you know, you've done the project, what can you do with it? Um, what are some other things that you can think of at the top of your head, Mitch? Um, well, you can publish it in a, in a journal. That's true. Um, if you could, you can publish it in a journal. And I mean, that that's a, that's a great outcome. And I suppose they would be your main... Um, I suppose, objective things that you would talk about on your CV, you know, like presented publications, posters, 
these sorts of things. These are, these are kind of the, the, the hard black and white evidence of your research. But then there's also other things that come with research, including, you know, the skills that you acquire, you know, some, some research will give you more skills in the field that you are interested in than others. And that could be of use to you in your, in your later career. And then there's kind of this other side of things where, you know, it's the people you meet. Um, not that nepotism is rife within medicine, um, but, you know, it's, it's always nice to, to be known in a field that you want to enter. Um, and, and it really does, you know, do you a lot of good to, to have people who, who recognize you, um, and know that you're really interested, um, so that you may get things like informal mentorship, um, along the way. Mm, Absolutely. Absolutely. And the thing that that we should also chat about is when we're talking about, you know, which of these are you going to try and gun for? I think if you're putting your eggs in the research basket, as in if you're doubling down on a project and it's good and, you know, the stars are aligning in the sense that you're progressing well and, you know, Hmm. the research question hasn't turned out to be too difficult or there's no data, which are all things that can happen. And, you know, it's never your fault in those situations. But if, if things are progressing well and, you know, the eggs are hatching, so to speak, um, you got to remember that publication takes a long time, you know, back and forth, back and forth. It could take up to four years to go from first draft to actually getting it published. And it's expensive too. So you have to pay for that publication to happen uh, in most situations uh, to get it accepted into the journal. Um, posters are much faster, right? Submitting posters and, you know, the, the, the sort of the cycle, the turnaround cycle with conferences is much faster. And as is the case with developing relationships with your supervisors, that's also very important. That mm. happens on a much shorter time frame. So don't think to yourself, oh, I'm going to focus on one of these things. I'm going to focus on my relationship with my supervisor at the detriment of, you know, maybe not submitting the poster. It sounds or even at the detriment of, at the detriment of learning medicine. That's true. You, know, that's the, you, you do need to come out uh, of medical school, hopefully with some skills in medicine, in addition to research. So really, if you're thinking this is going to be the, you know, the base of your, your learning pyramid, that's going to get you far in life, maybe consider, you know, being a star medical student first, and then having this as the icing on top. Absolutely. Nobody that being said, though, maraschino cherry, right? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say as well that, that, that you can also do research at other universities. So don't feel like you, you know, it helps if you're in the same city as the other university, but don't feel like if you're say a Monash student, you couldn't do research through a, a, you know, an institute that's affiliated with Unimelb and vice versa or any university for that matter. You know, at Notre Dame, we had um, the odd student who was doing a project through UCID as well. You know, it's, it's, it's all quite flexible, uh, but it's all, sort of be based off who you know and who wants to take you on um and 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 yeah so i so i would say i wouldn't let it shut you down from a particular university it doesn't really matter at the end of the day that that's actually a really really important point as well and we'll, we'll chat about this before wrapping up this episode i think well, like while your md project is more or less locked down you know you have to do that through the faculty it has to be graded once you have your sort of your, I, I guess, even if, if you haven't completed your MD project, um, because research is sort of the, the school of life teaches you research more than anything else. There are formal concepts, you know, the bio, biostats and things like that. But for the most part, understanding research as an apprenticeship, you have to do it and you have to have a good supervisor and you have to read papers and understand them. Um, but if you are really keen on it and you see a fantastic project somewhere, just email the supervisor. You know, worst they can do is say, look, you're not experienced enough when we don't need another team member. I'm not looking to mentor anybody at the moment. But odds are most projects 
have honors students, master students, PhD students attached to them. So if you're a medical student, right, even a junior doctor, and you see that opportunity, um, there's no reason not to go for it if it's something that you're interested in. So don't think to yourself, there's a hard and fast rule as to what is appropriate and inappropriate. Um, I think if you politely, professionally ask to be involved in something and you have some skill set and you're willing to learn, um, you're not really locked out of um, anything, you know, certainly not, not clinical stuff. Everybody has a research project at some point um, after medical mm -hmm. school, during medical school, before. Mm. Absolutely. Um, I couldn't have said that better myself, Aaron. <laughs> I know. I'm a fantastic speaker. <laughs> a podcaster par excellence. Anyway, uh, should we leave it there, Mitch? I, th I think yeah, I, th I think that's a, on that bombshell. Let's let's <laughs> let's leave it there. Yeah. Um, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we have uh many more episodes to come. Um, we're going to be talking foremostly about the recent GAM site, which wasn't so recent. Uh, but Aaron and I have been very busy over the last couple of weeks. Um, so we will be talking soon about the the recent GAMSAT um, and hopefully giving you some tips for the upcoming March 2023 uh, GAMSAT, which I hope you are not studying for. I hope you are getting some nice, well-earned break before hitting it hard in January. I hope you guys are as sunburned as we are. Anyway, um, <laughs> take care, guys, and we'll see you at the next episode of the pre-admission game.